0: Welcome to Faithbridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Scott Pollock and it was recorded on Sunday, March 27th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at podcast at faithbridge.org. And if you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for Faithbridge Online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Scott. Thank you so much for joining with us. Welcome everyone who's tuning in online this morning. So glad that you chose to be with us. Uh, Powerful song. Yes. Wow. I could do that on repeat. Uh, Wow. Hard for me to preach after that. Actually, uh, my name is Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, If you need a Bible, we're going to be in our scriptures this morning. If you need a Bible, you just raise your hand. We got some incredible deacons that are willing to give you one um, I don't know if this is true. I'm going to make an executive decision. You can keep it, too. Um, if, if that's not true, I'm sorry. But um, we're w- welcome this morning. We're so glad. Uh, it, when I first got saved in college, uh, John chapter 4, and uh, Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman was a powerful story for me early on in my walk. And I noticed something in that story. She comes to the well in the middle of the day with an empty water pot. John makes... The specific detail and records it that when she talked with Jesus and left, she left her water pot behind. I love that because he said, I will give you rivers of living water flowing from inside of you. And she didn't need the water pot anymore and she left it behind when she left. What an incredible song! So grateful that you um, joined us this morning for worship. Let's continue in worship with uh, studying the scriptures. Let's pray together. Can we pray? Father, we love you this morning, we bless you, we thank you, we honor you. We are so grateful. We, our, our, we echo our prayers for Matt Robertson and the Met Church. We echo our prayers already for the Ukraine and for the many Christians and everyone in that country. God, please be merciful, bring peace. We pray, Father, for our engagement with your living word this morning living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And we submit ourselves to the authority of your written and inspired word. And we want to ask that through it, you would speak to us this morning. So let me give you an opportunity where you are, wherever you're tuning in to ask God to speak to you. It's a simple prayer. I think he loves to answer. Just ask God to speak to you this morning and then pray for someone else that is tuning in or someone here with you that God would speak to them. If I may ask, would you say a simple prayer for me that God would speak through me this morning and it would be understandable and true? Oh, Father, we love you. We trust you. We honor and worship you. We long to hear your voice. It's the most important sound and we need it especially if we don't think we do. We need your voice in our life this morning, so speak clearly. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. It may have been the most expensive meal I've ever been a part of. I say may have been because I didn't pay for it. My wife and I were backpacking before kids. It always goes the way. My wife and I were backpacking before kids. So before kids in Italy. And uh, it was just a trip that we had always wanted to take. This is a very, very long time ago. And we're walking down the street in Rome um, at night trying to find a place to eat. And there's another couple walking across the street, down the street on the other side of the street. And we're making eyes at each other. And we finally stop and we say, hey, are you from the States? And they say, yeah. And we meet in the middle of the street and we um, get to find out that they're on their honeymoon. They were married uh, from, the upper, uh, from the Pacific uh, side, if I recall. And we were like, man, this is amazing. They were like, where are you going? We're going to eat. What are you doing tomorrow? And he said, you should come to the Vatican with us. And I said, well, we, we just booked a tour tomorrow. Sorry, we can't make. He goes, well, maybe we'll run into each other later. Great. A few days later, five days later or so, we're in Florence walking down the street. and We look. And uh, there they are walking down the street on the We're like, hey. He goes, hey. And uh, we meet in the middle of the street again. And he said, should have came to the Vatican with us. And I was like, why is that? He said, met the Pope. (laughs) Excuse me? He goes, well, I'm Catholic. And he found out that uh, we were on our honeymoon and he wanted to meet us and bless us. (laughs) I was like, wow, okay. Um, He said, what are you doing today? We got plans. And he goes, ah, well, maybe we'll meet up again, right? A Couple days later, Vernazza. Italy, uh, the fourth of the five Cinque Terre cities, gorgeous, my wife and I's favorite place on earth besides the Holy Land, and we're walking down the street, and we look over, and there they are. And uh, we go, hey, he said, hey, he goes, what are you doing tonight? And finally I said, nothing, <laughs> nothing. He goes... Let us have dinner together. And I was like, that's fantastic. He said, we just met two Australians. And I said, Gavin and Naz, huh? And he said, yes, how do you know that? I said, we hiked with them today. (laughs) That's how it goes in Italy, all right? And so... Uh, he said, well, they're coming. We're going to meet down uh, at the restaurant, um, down uh, on, the, on the coast. Like, Well, it's all on the coast, but uh, on the beach area there where all the boats are. And I was like, fantastic. He told us the time. We sat down. And I remember it was just six of us around the table. And it was just this, one of the most memorable meals of my entire life, right? Because I remember when the, the server came and brought the menus, this gentleman um who was on his honeymoon he said no we don't need those and the guy immediately took him up and he just stood there and he said sir are you from this village he said yes this is where i grew up he goes bring us what you would bring your family and don't stop until we tell you and he said yes right away and he just walked (laughs) off no questions asked. he just kept bringing food bringing food drink food food and it was three hours or more we told stories We talked about Jesus. Liza and I were the only Christians that um, were sort of evangelical Christians. And I ended up giving the Australians uh, my Bible because they were interested in reading it. They had never read it. It was heaven. It was heavenly. I wish I could tell you that we led all four of them to Jesus. That didn't happen. But uh, it was an absolutely gorgeous moment, memorable meal. I have no idea what the bill was because he... T- took care of it, and, and it, was, it was fantastic. Where, where we are in our story of the life of Jesus is the disciples and Jesus just had the most memorable meal of their entire lives. And what we're going to catch on the end of this story is the very next step. Literally, they leave the room where they had this meal, and we're going to pick up in Luke's Gospel that next step. So if you've got your Bibles, um, or if you want to open up your Bible app on your phone, we'll be in Luke chapter 22. And right after this most memorable meal, we're going to see the darkest night of Jesus's earthly ministry, the very darkest night. So in Luke chapter 22, that's where we will be, starting in verse 39. Near the end, it's a long chapter. Luke has long chapters. He's a doctor. He likes details. He's going to give us some doctorly details in this text today and makes this text um, extremely unique. Luke is writing to a specific group of readers, and he is a specific kind of writer. Again, he's a doctor. We find that out from the Acts of the Apostles and his interaction with Paul. And he includes some, uh, I said, some, Um, medicinal, medical details in this that are very, very peculiar. Luke also doesn't like Hebrew words. Not that he didn't respect it, but his readership wouldn't have appreciated them. So he eliminates almost all of the Hebrew words or Aramaic words in his gospel that Matthew, Mark, and John may include. For instance, Jesus does not get crucified in a couple of weeks. We'll see this text. Three weeks from now is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus doesn't get crucified on Golgotha. Um, He gets crucified at a place called the skull. He just translates Golgotha to the skull. That's what it means. But he doesn't use the word Golgotha. So in our text today, we're, we're going to see Jesus go to the garden. Every other one calls Gethsemane, but that's an Aramaic word. And so he doesn't use that. He uses a garden on the Mount of Olives, which is where it was. So he Includes this story, of which is found in all four of our gospels, and it is it's, it's powerful. It's unique, and it shows us something very, very unique about Jesus and about Jesus' love for us and about Jesus' invitation and offer. Do you know, we could have gone from the upper room where they had the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, and we could have just gone back to the Mount of Olives every night he spent there. He traveled back and forth, back and forth. Chapter 21 of Luke, verse 37 tells us this was his custom, back and forth, back and forth. That's why Judas knew where he was going to be. But we could have gone from the upper meal back to Bethany where he stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then he could have just come back the next day and been arrested we could have skipped Gethsemane. The gospel writers could have easily skipped it. They, they omit a lot. They can't tell us everything that happened in Jesus' life in three or four years of public ministry. We could have skipped this. But every one of the four gospels record this moment because it tells us something that the cross, as important, and central as it was, doesn't tell us without this. together. It's powerful. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. This is the very short Lucan version of Gethsemane. Verse 39, And he, that's Jesus, came out from the upper room where they celebrated the Passover meal. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation." And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying father if you are willing remove this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done now an angel from heaven appeared to him strengthening him and being in agony he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he arose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And in those short verses is Luke's whole version of the Gethsemane event. And again, he doesn't even use that word. But what we see in Matthew and Mark, less in John, John skips the prayers and gets right to Judas. But what we see in Matthew and Mark are important enough that I want to supplement this on your screen. Just stay in Luke with your Bibles. But on your screen, I want to show you Matthew 26, Matthew's version of the same event. It'll be up on your screen. Or just listen to me say it quickly. This is Matthew. Then Jesus came with them, that's the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, which means oil press. And they pressed oil, olives, in that day. They pressed oil three times. And this is why Matthew and Mark record three prayers of Jesus. And can you imagine how pleasant it is for the olive itself to be pressed? And so Jesus in Luke is like he's being pressed and blood comes out like sweat. So all of this is part of the picture. A place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? He's been praying for an hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh. Is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Luke condenses his version on purpose. He doesn't want to leave anything out for us. He does have limited space in the parchment on which he's writing, but he condenses it on purpose. And the words of Jesus in Luke's version, chapter 22, start and end with the same thing. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And that's the theme Of luke's passage so let's look at it slowly and we'll walk back through it luke chapter 2 22 verse 39 he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the mount of olives again the scripture tells us that every day throughout this week as soon as jesus came up the week is pretty clear through the scriptures if you read it wednesday or thursday jesus makes it all the way to jericho about a week before he died okay so wednesday or thursday week before He goes to Jericho, which is down the Judean mountains into the Jordan Rift Valley. And there he meets blind Bartimaeus and heals him. He also has dinner with Zacchaeus, a wee little man, right? That's from the living version. And uh, then he begins to ascend the Judean mountains, singing the Psalms of Ascent as every one of the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims would have done coming up into Passover. And it tells us that he stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. So he would just behind the hill, Uh, of Mount of Olives. And so he would come over the top of the hill of the Mount of Olives, go down the Kidron Valley into probably the Sheep's Gate or the Eastern Gate of the temple. And every day after his triumphal entry on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he was teaching in the temple, getting into lots of trouble with the Pharisees and the religious professional God followers of the day. We can track his week. And then it comes to Thursday, which apparently in that year, which scholars say is either AD 30 or AD 33, um, Thursday is the 15th day of Nisan, which is the Passover day. And he celebrates that with his disciples. It is the most memorable and important meal in the life of a Jew, in the annual calendar of a Jew. It remembers their redemption from Egypt. Four hundred and thirty years they were slaves there, Uh, Exodus tells us, to the very day. To the very day that they left. Exodus 12, God reveals to Moses his instructions for the Passover meal. Four critical elements. You cannot have a Passover meal without these four elements. Lamb, roasted in a specific way unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and wine, specifically four cups of wine that come from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The first one is the cup of sanctification. The second one, the cup of deliverance. The third one, the one that Jesus lifted up, was called the cup of redemption. Still is for our Jewish friends and brothers and sisters that celebrate it today. The last one is the cup of glory or the cup of cup of glorification. That's the one he said, I will not drink it again until I drink with my Father in in heaven in the kingdom. It's a powerful meal. After the main meal where you eat the bread and the lamb and the bitter herbs, there's a special piece of unleavened bread called the afikoman that they hide away and then redeem back. It's that piece of bread where he says after the meal he took bread and broke it. This is the redeemed portion of pierced and striped unleavened bread, which means it's sinless. Leaven equals sin. Sinless, pierced and striped, hidden away and redeemed. Sound familiar with what Jesus is going to do in the next few days? And he says, this is my body. It would look like his body in a couple of days, broken for you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for you. Right after this meal, they begin to sing a hymn. And he says, let us go from here. And they start walking. John chapter 13 records that he also washed the feet of the disciples that night, which made it even more memorable. And then as they left, he said, Judas is already gone. It's now just me and you, 11 men, the women, of course, with them. And he says, I want to tell you something. And he starts talking through life after him. I want to tell you how important it will be for you to do life well after I'm gone." This is John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. They call it the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus is having this conversation as he is on his way through the Temple Mount, down the sheep's out of the Sheeps Gate, down to the Kidron Valley, and he stops at the Garden, at the base of the Mount of Olives, where he always stops. This was his custom. That's why Judas knew where to find him. And so he's here. Can you see it? I want you to see it in your mind. It's dark. They may have had some lanterns or torches, but this is long before electric lights. And this is dark. It's a dark night, both physically and metaphorically it's dark. And I need you to feel that. Again, he says, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That word temptation, he's already used once in the conversation just before this. It's also translated trials or testing. And he said to his disciples, you've been with me through all of my trials. Now pray that you may not. He says, pray for yourself in Luke. Pray for you that you may not enter into a time of testing and temptation and trial. And then if you're not a Jewish reader, accustomed with the ancient Near East, these next couple of verses may be lost on you. Let me try to open them up for you. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray. What is the posture of prayer for Jews in Jesus' day? Do you know? Standing... Arms raised, eyes to heaven. This is how you pray if you're a Jew. Even if you pray uh, alone in your home, they would pray like this. How is Jesus praying? Luke, Luke mentions it. He falls down. This is our first clue. This is a unique moment. Matthew is what we just read is he fell on his face. Matthew emphasizes it even more. Jesus kneels down. If you're reading this with Jewish eyes, you go, wait a second, wait a second, this is unique. And then it says he began to pray in the text. The specific verbal tense of this lost on us in English, it's from the imperfect verbal tense in Greek, which means that he was continually praying, It wasn't just a short prayer. And again, Matthew tells us, he comes back and says, couldn't you even pray with me for an hour? So he's probably praying continually for an hour. This is what he said, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There are two big questions everybody has, and they should, when we come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Two large questions. This will help us because we want to be honest. We want to be honest with God's word. We want to be honest with each other. We want to ask hard questions of God's word. I hope you know when you're reading or when you're praying when you are praying to God, God is not ever put off by hard questions. He's not put off by doubt. He's not put off by struggle. If you ask him a hard question, you know you can't paint God into a corner. Well, I've got this argument, Jesus, that uh, A plus B equals C, but C does not equal D, and I read D in the text, and so you explain yourself, right? Jesus got some explaining to do, and he says, I'm not troubled by that at all. So when I read Gethsemane, when I've talked to people who read Jesus in Gethsemane, they tend to have two questions. One, was Jesus afraid? Second part of the question, maybe what was he afraid of if he was? Second question, was Jesus opting out? Was Jesus afraid and was Jesus opting out? Let's look at what he says. Father. In Mark, this is where we get Jesus saying Abba. But again, that's Aramaic. Luke doesn't want to include that. He just includes Father. And we must start here. We must start here. If I can encourage you, if this sermon was just specifically about prayer, this would be my very first point. When you pray, I would deeply, highly, from the depths of my heart, encourage you to start your prayers with Father because it reminds your heart who you're speaking to. Oh, by the way, your Father is a king. He's the creator. The eternal one. He is triune. He cannot and must not be treated as common, but he invites us to pray to him and to engage him as father. Jesus says, father. And then he says this, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, I was talking with my family about this, and you probably have had similar conversations. Jesus is eternal. There was never a time when Jesus was not. And it says that he was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Before there was even the problem of sin, God knew how he was going to solve it. And God, triune, includes Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus always knew that this was the moment. I think he even knew it in his earthly ministry. He is 100% human during those years on earth and 100% divine in a union of natures that is difficult for us in our finite minds to understand. But I think he always knew. And now he comes down to the eve of that day. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Notice the way that he phrases it, and it's true in Matthew and Mark as well. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then he follows it up with um, the most important single line of a prayer that we could pray in all of our lives, I believe. Not my will, but yours be done. William Barclay says, that's a very important prayer for us to say, but it matters a lot, the tone of voice when you pray it. We can pray it like this, not my will, but yours be done. Or we can pray it, I think like Jesus, hands outstretched, kneeling on the ground. Father, your plan, which I have known, because we are one, your plan is far more important. But this moment recorded for our followers is is critical, why? because there's one key ingredient to Jesus's sacrifice that amps it up. It's really important. He says it in John 10 and he lives it out here. And that's what makes him different from all of the Passover lambs that were being sacrificed at the same time, of which he will become the final, ultimate Passover lamb, right? Killed on Passover, pierced, None of his bones were broken because in Exodus chapter 13, it says, none of the bones of the Passover lamb are to be broken. It's intentional. It's critical. This is the moment. Jesus set this all up. All of these things are aligning to show us who he is. But there's one key difference. The lambs, you may say, Scott, this is silly, but the lambs had no choice. They were sacrificed against their will. Not so Jesus, and here's the point. Jesus in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep follow me because they know my voice and I know their names. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Then he says specifically, explicitly, my life is not taken from me. I lay it down willingly. I choose to lay my life down for the sheep. Without Gethsemane, it may leave us open to read the story and see Jesus as something that happened to him. The stone begins to roll down the hill. The leaders sway Pilate. Pilate has power. Jesus is out of control. No, no. Gethsemane says, I choose this cup. Godet says that Jesus did not drink the cup in Gethsemane. He chose to drink it in Gethsemane. So what is the cup? The cup is from Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51 and Psalm 11 and Psalm 75 and all throughout the Old Testament, probably picturing at least two things. One, a suffering and sorrow. And two, the cup of God's wrath on sin. You put those two together, and you remember the cup that Jesus just celebrated a couple of hours before. He says, this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant. He says, now I'm, I'm going to drink. Th- I choose to drink this cup. And he's going to sweat blood in just a second. It all comes together. He says, I, I want to choose and I will choose and I am choosing. Father, because your will is greater than mine, I choose to drink down. Now this is the part that breaks me. I choose to drink down the cup of your wrath on sin and there has that has consequences. I hope you know dear Christian or if you're not one who is trusted in Jesus, I hope you all know that sin has consequences. Even as a believer, it has consequences. It interrupts your intimacy and fellowship with God. There may be things that you have to pay here. The discipline of the Lord will come upon you. If you're not one who is trusted in Jesus, your sin has eternal consequences because you have to pay the cost of that. And the wages of sin are death, as we read in our um, antiphonal prayer. But Jesus says, I'll take that death from you. So sin always has consequences. I want you to hear me. Obedience to God has consequences too. It will very often put us at friction with a fallen world and set us apart, sanctified and holy, and the world around us won't like it. Obedience to God and Father's will for Jesus had consequences. These were the consequences. He set him from the cross. When he fully drank that cup in a couple of days, for the first time ever, he was separated from his father. For the first time in eternity, before there was time to measure, they have been together, father, son, and spirit in perfect communion. But he knew in this moment, When I drink that cup, when I accept the sin of the world, because of that sin, I will be separated from my dad. That's the cup that he chose, and he chose that for you. So was Jesus afraid? I don't think Jesus was afraid. I think he's showing us the reality of this moment. He's honest. He's not stoic. He's not angry. He's not fearful. No. He's showing us the weight of this moment. He's real. Was Jesus opting out? No. He was showing us his willingness. He was showing us that he chooses this out of love. It's a powerful, powerful moment. The darkest night, I think, of Mm Jesus' earthly ministry. And Luke, the doctor, continues in verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Can I show you some art? Because I want you to feel this in this moment. This first one is from a Russian painter called Mikhail Shenkov. And I just want you to see this image because it, it's haunting to me. Not as haunting as the second one, but it. It identifies in, in me when I see this, it's one of my favorites, uh, the loneliness that Jesus felt in this moment. The loneliness. This next one is from a Russian named Nikolai Gee. It's from 1889. It's just simply called Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. I get a physical visceral response when I see this painting. It's dark, it's heavy, it's brooding. Jesus is looking at you as if to say, this is all for you. This is the depth and length and breadth and height of my love for you. And it's heavy. There's a cosmic battle happening here. Can you see it in the text? Now an angel from heaven appeared to him. Angels don't go where they where they want to, you know that? They go where they're sent. So the father sends an angel because he knows this is an important moment. And Luke uses the same word that he used when Satan tempted him in the wilderness in chapter four. That word temptation, it's only used a few times in Luke. Chapter four, chapter eight, where he tells us the Lord's, or chapter eight is the sower. Chapter 11, where he gives us the Lord's prayer and here. So it hints at the devil, we see an angel, there's a cosmic, bat. this is a supernatural scene. And it says he was in agony. It's, it's a transliteration of a Greek word, agony. It's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament, right here. He was in agony, broken, broken on the inside for what he was about to do, the very weight, the thought of being separated from his father. That's why he claimed and cried Psalm 22. They didn't have titles of psalms back then. They recognized and identified them by the first line. So from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God doesn't forsake. But when Jesus drank the cup and became sin, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. When he became sin, God had to turn his back. And it broke it. His sweat became like drops of blood. It's a medical condition, hematidrosis. It happens, it's extremely rare. And the cases that we've seen in history and been able to study typically come from two events. Men or women who are awaiting their execution under such incredible stress and anxiety, or men and women in an intense military battle and aren't both relevant to Jesus's experience. Verse 45, when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and repeated, this is the theme for Luke. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So why did Jesus do all this? Let's wrap this up in application. And then I wanna just close in a time of prayer together. Jesus prayed, I want to close and lead us in a time of prayer in response. What is all of this in application? What does Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane have to do with ours? Well, I don't know if you recall the first two verses of Hebrews 12. We, we, we recall those and we love those and for, for good reason. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin that hinders The things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him embraced the cross, despising its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father of God. And that's where most of our scripture memory ends. But then verse 3, for consider him who suffered such hostility at the hands of angry sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." That last phrase in Greek, so that you will not grow weary, it means to faint in your soul. So that you, friend, when you suffer, will not grow weary and faint in your soul. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest interceding for us in heaven, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who experienced all of them yet without sin, so that we know we have a high priest who knows so that we can approach the throne of grace when we need mercy and grace." Perhaps the hardest one for me comes from 1 Peter, a book that's all about suffering. Peter. Um, says something difficult. It's almost like he is um, commenting. He's giving us a commentary on Jesus. For if the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Just listen. What credit is there when, when you sin and are harshly treated if you endure with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer patiently endure it. This is grace with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin? Was any deceit found in his mouth? No. And while being reviled, he did not revile. In return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept, listen, friends, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In Gethsemane, he said, I'm turning my life over, and I know what the cup means, and I know the consequences. So my big idea, if I want you to hang your memory on anything, is this, Jesus chose the cup and the consequences to extend an invitation, an offer of comfort for you in your dark trials. Jesus chose the cup and the consequences willingly to extend an offer to you for comfort during your dark trials. Now make no mistake, so much more was accomplished on the cross where Jesus actually drank the cup. And perfectly satisfied the wrath of God on sin, plundered hell, and rescued and redeemed us. But in Gethsemane, something as critical is happening. He says, friend, when you're going through the depths of anxiety and depression, when you're going through relational trouble, when you feel unjustly hurt and wounded when you're suffering for doing right i know how it feels i know hear me follow me and trust the father who judges righteously the last verse of luke that we'll talk about verse 47 right after this, while he was still speaking, Jesus, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12 was preceding them and he approached Jesus to kiss him. We know how this turns out. And that's our message for next week. Can we pray together? I wanna lead you in a time of prayer. So would you just get comfortable for just a couple of minutes. It's not gonna be long, but let's pray together. And let's pray a prayer that I bet you, Jesus prayed often. It's from an ancient psalm. You know it. Let's pray and engage our hearts on this. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus said he is your good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Can you just offer God thanks in your heart in this moment for being your shepherd? Recognize that he is. That he leads you. As Jesus says in John 10, he gathers his flock together and then goes before them and lays down his life. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters and restores my soul, guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Could you ask God in this moment? To restore your soul he knows all things but identify just a couple of places three places three people three wounds three questions where you need restoration of your soul just bring those before God he's your father he loves this moment The psalmist continues, even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil because you are with me. Can you just engage in the prayer of this a moment, the presence of your father? It is true that he never leaves you nor forsake you, but it's also true that you can feel alone or lonely. Engage the reality of his presence and thank him that even though you're walking through a valley or you might be in the future, that he is with you. (coughs) Father, we thank you that your rod and your staff, they comfort, that you prepare a table for me and us in the presence of our enemies. You have anointed our heads with oil, and your our cup of joy and inheritance and blessing is a different cup than the cup that Jesus chose for us. Because he drank the cup of wrath, you fill our cup of joy and blessings to overflowing. Surely goodness and kindness and loving-kindness and grace will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in your house securely forever. We bless you, Father. We thank you. We thank you. We honor you. Heal us and restore us in those places we most desperately needed. Gethsemane, the oil press. Many of us feel like we're being crushed right now. God, would you meet us there? lift our heads and heal our souls we trust you father and we thank you we pray all this in jesus name and all god's people everywhere said amen amen